We're in Ephesians 1 through 3, and I want to suggest it's kind of like reading about an inheritance. I had a funeral director tell me something I thought was very humorous. He said, Tom, he said, you know that expression where there's a will, there's a way? No. Where there's a will are all the relatives. And I was like, isn't that interesting? And he says, and they fight. So I want you to imagine that you receive, like in all the Hallmark movies, a letter that you have an old uncle that you didn't know about who left you a will. You want to know what did you inherit. Ephesians 1 through 3 might, might be illustrated in that fashion. The first three chapters are just this litany of things that God has given us, our wealth. These are our blessings. Remember we use Scrooge McDuck. God's going... I blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You could be so secure. You're a child of God. You're, you're chosen by me. You're dearly loved. You've been adopted. As Keith just mentioned, you've been forgiven through his blood. You have known the mystery of his will. You've become his inheritance. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's coming again, the day of redemption. So Paul tells us how blessed we are. And then he transitioned, remember, in chapter 1 to pray for that. He said, since you have faith now, I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom so that you can know these blessings, that, that you think about them, that you experience them, that you don't walk around like a pauper when you're a prince. But then he comes back in chapter 2, and he begins to tell us more about our wealth. Nothing about our walk. That's coming later. But in chapter 2, he's going to unfold for us two areas where we've inherited great blessings. First of all, individually, he says, you have a new position. And we saw that last week. He goes, don't you remember? You were dead. You were blind. You were held captive by Satan. You were deserving of God's wrath. But even when you were dead in your sins, because God loved us, he made us alive in Christ. He saved us by his grace, not by our works. He seated us with Christ. We're so secure. But while we're here now, as we've been saved individually, he says, now you're created to do good works. Paul's going to continue that theme of what you were to who you are now, but this time he's going to transition to doing it corporately. He's no longer going to talk about our individual position, but now our corporate position in the family of God. Now, I want to start with this background. Oh, yeah, no, thank you. The mics fell down in the back here. So literally, I was kind of talking behind my back. <laughs> In one way, I guess you could say that. I shouldn't have said that. Why do I bother? All right, now, so what do you, I'm going to make a statement here. Racism did not begin in America. The seeds of racism began when Adam disobeyed God. When Adam disobeyed God, his disposition became disconnected from God. And as a result, he then had the seeds of hostility bred within his very soul. Well, I wouldn't say bred because he, was, he wasn't born. But his children inherited that hostile disposition. Separated from God vertically caused opposition on a horizontal level. His first two children, one killed the other. The capacity to hate and harm fellow human beings, family members, began with the fall. It was, it was clear that this thing was spiraling quickly. By Genesis chapter 6, it says the whole earth was full of violence. 
like they were just killing each other. Right? You're killing me. So God has to wipe them out and start with a, a little seed group of eight people through Noah. And as time went on, we read Genesis 8 to 11, that then we have this united race of people, but not one nation under God, but one nation opposed to God, trying to build a tower in rebellion. He told them to spread out. And so God comes down and confounds them, and then the races are scattered. And, and that's the seed of how race, because people, evolutionists, so uh, where did races come from? We go, well, races began when God separated the people at the Tower of Babel. And, and those, if you study genetics, you can understand how that kind of unfolds, not just language-wise. But in any case, with all of these nations now on the earth, God had always been thinking about a solution to this hostility and, and, and alienation. He wanted to reconcile people to himself, but he also wanted to reconcile people to one another. So the solution was not to pick a nation, but it was to create a nation. So he, he takes Abraham and he says, you're going to become my nation, my people. But it was never intended to be exclusive to the Jewish nation because he told Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the solution to this disenchanted hostility toward God and lack of reconciliation among the nations, alienation and fighting among the nations was going to be solved through the cross. So with that in mind, as we read Ephesians 2, we have to understand the historical background that was going on in this particular time. The tragedy of the Jewish nations is that they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to attract all of the other nations to go, wow, our gods aren't real. Their God is real. But what happens and is often happens is that the Gentiles or the Jews took a privilege and they perverted it into a posture of superiority. Over time, they began to not see themselves as God's chosen people to be a light to the nations, but they began to see themselves as superior and they began to despise the nations. They began to look at Gentiles as these awful, detestable heathen. They began to literally call Gentiles dogs. William Barclay in his commentary says the Jews had an immense contempt for Gentiles. They literally said in their writings, Gentiles were created by God to be fueled for the fires of hell. They said, our God only loves Israel. And so therefore, it's not lawful for a Gentile mother in her sorest need of having a child. Don't help her. Don't help her because that would bring another Gentile in the world. Gentiles were, in con con they were hated. Now, bear in mind that Gentiles knew how Jews felt about them, so they didn't get warm fuzzies toward their Jewish neighbors. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, they had a funeral. When Jesus once said, wipe the dust off your feet, he didn't make that up. Jews were already using that expression when they would leave the promised land to go to a Gentile country, when they would come back into Jewish soil, they would wipe the Gentile dirt off of their feet. So one can only imagine that it's in that context that all of a sudden 
Paul begins to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. Remember, when, when the gospel was first proclaimed, it went to the Jews only. But all of a sudden, Paul steps out and starts bringing Gentiles to Christ. And we have a huge problem there. In the book of Acts, the Jews are flipping their wigs. They're like, what are you doing? Peter and Paul, you're, you can't. They're dogs. And so now here's Paul in a setting of having two people that truly hate one another and saying, all right, we, we have to learn how to play nicely here. Now, if Paul was as smart as we are today, he could have solved this. When Jews become Christians now, we just have Friday night messianic services. Just let them have their own culture. And then we have our, our Gentiles on Sunday. Maybe we'll have a token. Maybe there's one or two Jews out there. If Paul knew that was going on, he would have flipped his wig. And I'm not blaming Jews for this. I'm simply saying that wasn't an option. So what we're going to read about today is Paul's going to make three not suggestions, three statements about this issue. The first one is this, that in the Old Testament, most Gentiles were excluded from God and his people. That's just a reality. In the Old Testament, most Gentiles were excluded from God for a variety of reasons. They grew up in godless, heathen culture. I mean, it wasn't like Rahab was raised in a Christian home. It was only through hearing about the true God of the Jews that she was graced by God to, to believe and turn to him. But most Gentiles were separated, not just from the true God, but also from God's people. It wasn't like the Gentiles were going, come on, come on. But, but I say most because, remember, the Jewish nation didn't even start till Abraham, Genesis 12. We got a lot of people before then. So everyone who was saved before then, like Noah, Melchizedek, Enoch, all, you know, all of them were Gentiles. But even after the nation of Israel, Ruth, Rahab, Uriah the Hittite, it wasn't unheard of, but most Gentiles were excluded. So let's read in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where Paul unfolds this. Now notice he says, therefore... Remember that formerly you. But then down in verse 13, he's going to say, but now, and then later on, he's going to say, so then. So it's very similar to earlier. He goes, remember, you were dead. Remember, but now God did this. So remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. Now, that was an insult. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So we, we see some of the perversion of the Jewish mentality. Not only did the Jews have an air of superiority, they, they mistook the symbol for salvation. So the purpose of circumcision, Genesis says, was to be a sign of your faith. Okay? But they exchanged that and said, no, that's what is that that's what is saves you. We're circumcised, right? And so they assumed that because they were circumcised, they were saved. We're children of Abraham. We're circumcised. We're, and Jesus had to come and ream them out. He goes, don't think because you're a child of Abraham that you're in. You'll be cast out and Gentiles will be coming in if you don't repent. So that's why Paul uses this sort of tongue-in-cheek by the so-called circumcision. In other words, in the Jewish mind, <laughs> we're in. We're God's people. And Paul goes, don't let these so-called circumcision upset you. 
In fact, in Philippians 3, he said, we believers are the true circumcision because we worship in the spirit and we glory in Christ. So he goes, remember, that's what they called you. But then he says, there is some truth to this. There's five things that were true about you. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ. You did not know the Messiah. You did not know about the Messiah. You were cut off. No bars on your phone. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. So vertically, you're cut off from Christ. Horizontally, you were not welcome into the community of the Jewish people. In addition, he says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. The gracious, living, true God, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the only real God made these tremendous covenant promises to the Jews first, to be his people, to inherit the world, to have a king over them, to have worldwide peace, to have God dwell among them. The Gentiles didn't have any of that. He says, in fact, and he summarizes two things about them. He said, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. But I want to suggest that, listen, that's exactly how most people live today. Most Americans, you might as well just say two things about them. They have no hope. Because biblical hope is a confident certainty about the future. If you're a Christian, the COVID is awful but it should not cause you to have no hope. Because even if we all die from the COVID, which will probably will not happen, we have a fixed, certain hope. We are confident that we're going to be with the Lord. We're not wondering what's going to happen after I die. Most people, even in some of the major churches, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, do not offer the hope of the gospel. They do not offer that certainty. The Bible says these things have been written that you might know that you have eternal life. So I imagine it is pretty scary to, to be fearful of dying because you don't know what's coming. So most people have no hope. Secondly, they're without God. I like to use the term godless here. A lot of people think godless is like you go around killing people. You're an axe murderer. Godless is just when God's not part of your life. He's not on your screensaver. He's not on your radar. You don't think about him. You don't worship him. You don't, you're not grateful to him. You just live disconnected from Christ. And what saddens me is some preachers, all they'll say is, if you die, you're going to be in a Christless eternity. That ain't very scary to me. They've been living Christless. It's far bigger than a Christless eternity. It's a lake of fire where the smoke of men's torment ascends up day and night forever. But to live without God is to be godless. And it's subtle. Sometimes it's it's obvious and sometimes it's subtle this week i was talking to my granddaughter we we're talking about the rain and she goes yeah mother nature's been really doing that and i said honey what, is, what what do you mean by that she said well you know mother nature she controls the weather i said now who is mother nature i said is there is, is there some lady out there mother i said do, do, do you know god controls the rain right and the snow she goes yeah she goes i never thought about that pop right well yeah most people don't realize just how godless they really are. They, they think, me and the man upstairs, we're cool. No, you're not. You might think you are, but the Bible says the wrath of God abides on you. So this is, the, this is true of all unbelievers, but particularly of Gentiles. He says you're without hope and without God. 
Bad news. But now, point number two. In the Old Testament, most Gentiles were excluded. But 13 through 18, we're going to see this wonderful truth. Christ purchased and proclaimed reconciliation, Gentile inclusion, and a new creation. There are four terms that the New Testament uses to, to celebrate the death of Christ. One of them is that it was a sacrifice, once for all. Another term is that it's redemption. He redeemed us. He purchased us with his blood. Another one is it's propitiation. It's satisfied God's wrath. So when you're celebrating and singing about God and, and, and the death of Christ, sing with your mind. Like when we sing in Christ alone, you're singing about propitiation. For on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So, so we're thinking. But the fourth word that the Bible uses is that the cross provides reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. So what we're going to find here is that there was this great breach. There was an alienation, a hostility toward Jews and Gentiles. Now, we, we see this in our culture right now. We see it on a political level we, level. we see it on a racial level. And we're all trying to figure out how can we bring people together. And I'm going... Apart from that, we can't. Okay, so let's look at this passage. So Paul says, though that's who you were formerly, look at verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I thought of an illustration here. It's like, if you, if you go to Sesame Place, you can get into the lazy river, right, and, and wind your way along. This is the crimson tide, not Alabama, the crimson tide of the blood of Jesus. No matter how far off you are from God, you plunge into that crimson fountain and you who are far off are brought near, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Why? Well, Paul says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, Paul's using some, when you're learning to read the Bible, if you can learn to, to, to study and get some historical background, it often is illuminating. If you know anything about the first century Jewish temple, one of the seven wonders of the world, it had walls within walls. It was huge, bigger than a couple football fields. But there were certain areas where women couldn't go beyond this. But there was, a, there was a, a big, thick, like 18 to 24-inch block wall that said this. No Gentile can go beyond this by penalty of death. Actually, it was one and a half meter stone barricade. And all around this wall, it was called the Court of the Gentiles. Okay? Now, interestingly there, Gentiles could come. God wanted Gentiles to come. In fact, that's what set Jesus off, right? He, he sees them selling and turning it into a, a place to make money. He goes, get out. My father's house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. But the Gentiles knew this. There was a wall that said, you can't go beyond that. You're like, I wonder what that feels like. I feel it all the time. Every time I get on a plane, I'm like, I wonder what they do up there in first class, you know. <laughs> that looks good, right? You're not allowed beyond here. So, so Paul says, in Christ... He made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. But, but you'll notice that the terms, he, so he's already used the blood. Now he says by abolishing in his flesh. 
So he's always going to the cross. By the blood, by his flesh, he abolished the enmity, which is the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, body, flesh, blood. He's saying it's all about Jesus on the cross. This is what creates the potential for unity among people of hostility. But I want you to, to, to just ponder, how would it feel if you were the Jews? Any of you who have come from a blended family might consider that if it's your house and your parent and these new kids are moving in to your house, eh, it worked well on the Brady Bunch, Please don't try it at home. Or, or I shouldn't say that. Please don't expect the same results at home. This was not great news to the, gen to the Jews. They were not going, that's so cool. Put another bowl of soup on for the new people. I messed this up in the first service. I had this great illustration and I ruined it. I said, remember that rock song, Who Let the Dogs Out? So just to save you from coming saying, that wasn't a rock song, it was a rap song. Okay, thank you. Remember the rap song, Who Let the Dogs Out? The Jews were singing it a little differently. Who let the dogs in? But it's more radical than this because not only did God let them in, the, gent the Jews weren't going, well, you can come into our house. God says, no, it's not. I'm making a whole new house. One, this is a whole new deal. This isn't just move over and let the Gentiles ride in the van. I'm blowing that van up. I'm creating a whole new entity, the people of God in the new covenant. And not only did Christ purchase this, but he personally proclaimed it. Look at verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Jesus, Jesus didn't say to the Canaanite woman, I told you you're a dog, now beat it, kid, you bother me. He finally said, I haven't seen such faith. And he extended salvation to a, to a, a Roman centurion and to a, a Gentile. He began to plant within this people of God this idea that the gospel is going to all the nations. He, he would hint at it. Ultimately, at the end of his life, they said, Lord, now you're going to restore the, the kingdom to Israel? He goes, what are you talking about? Go be my witnesses. What's the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of who? All the nations. Jesus came to preach peace to those who are far away. But notice, it says he also came to preach peace to those who were near. You go, wait. The Jews were the near ones. Why would he need to preach peace to them? Because you know what most religious people are? Self-righteous. There's two types of sinners that end up in hell. Religious, self-righteous sinners and irreligious, godless sinners. They're both lost. You need to preach peace to those who are near if they think, well, I'm religious. I'm in. I'm a Jew. I'm in. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm in. You're not in because you're religious. You're only in if you've made peace with God through Christ on the cross. So Jesus didn't just go, go get them pagan Gentiles. He reamed out the hypocrites and said, don't think you're in if you don't repent. If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. And so Paul says, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
equal access. We talk about that. We need to give equal opportunities. The gospel is the very foundation of equal opportunities for all. I like to give illustrations. Did you know you can't get into this building on odd hours unless you have a fob, right? And there are levels at which your fob works, like, like your fob could get you into that door, but there are increasing levels, like there's an office that has offices and safes and important computer machinery and stuff. It's the very, we'd tell you, but we'd have to extinguish it. You can't go there. I can't even get in there. My fob will not let me into the office. I do not have yet that access, but someday I will. I long for that day. I long for that day when Bob's about to go in his office and I go, I got this. But until that day, we can all, we, we can think about this. Like, think about how Jews and Gentiles would think. The Gentiles are like, what? I, I, I can come, there's no more wall that says, you stop here and my Jewish friends keep going. We both have equal access to God, okay? So you can put yourself in the emotion of the Gentiles, but also put yourself in the emotion of the Jews. They weren't going, come on, man. Let me bring you right to, let me, let me take it. You want to see what it's like in here? They didn't like it. Sinners don't like to share. Now, Paul's not going to spend the rest of this passage explaining how to flesh this out. Thankfully, Pastor Bob's going to do that. When we come to chapter 4, Paul's going to say, Therefore, since you've been called into this, here's how, here's how we have to learn to work it out. But for now, he establishes this great truth that Christ proclaimed and purchased and formed a new creation. But there's one last thing, and we'll tie it up with this. The point that he's going to make here is, so then, verse 19, in light of these things, Jews and Gentiles, look around. Through Christ, Jews and Gentiles are a new family on a new foundation. The Bible uses familiar models for the church. Like, here's an easy way to remember. In, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses three Bs. To describe the church, he calls it the bride of Christ. We're like, oh, I love that, Pastor. Yeah, the bride of Christ. He calls us the body of Christ. Oh, Pastor, I love that. The body, the head, the unity, the diversity. But he also calls the church the building. And in this passage, he's going to describe us as a building. Look with me in verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household having been built upon the foundation. Now, when you think about this, the church is not a building in one sense. The church is not this. But in another sense, the church is very much a building. So let me thank you, church building, for coming into this building. And when the Bible calls the church the household of God, that's not talking about a building. That's talking about a family. The Bible says we should do good to all men, but especially those who have the household of God. When we know that someone else is a born-again Christian, that's my sibling. That's my peeps. I have to learn how to have a uniquely special relationship by all of those who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of the same family. We're built upon the foundation of Christ and and we're being fitted together and growing as a holy temple in the Lord. Now look here. In whom you 
are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. My neighbor just had an addition put on, and my wife's like, I wonder if that's going to, I said, I don't know. Oh, they're putting an addition on for their father-in-law, right? So think of it this way. Each time someone becomes a Christian, take a little mortar, wipe it on them, and drop them into the block, right? Because we're building a building. But the building is us. So when the Bible refers to your, your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, that's only part of it. That's individual. But the Bible also makes a big deal that we are a corporate building. There's no such thing in the New Testament, if you're online, to just be a, you know, if you're not here because you're worried about the COVID, totally understood. If you're not here because it's more comfortable to have a latte and coffee, you're missing the point. We are a united, gathered people of God. Jesus said, gather in my name. And when you do, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. You see, in the Old Testament, when God said in Exodus 25, build a tabernacle that I may dwell among them, that was individual. But corporately, consider this, that in this age, Jesus is building us, and while they were able to see the, at times the Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle and in the temple, we need to have that mindset that particularly when we gather the very presence of the living God is in our midst. Jesus is enthroning and, and indwelling us as a corporate community. And that even affects how we conduct ourselves when we gather as we're worshiping. Paul made this very practical in 1 Corinthians 14. He goes, I don't want you all to be speaking in tongues. And it's so confusing. He goes, because if an unbeliever comes in he'll think you're crazy but he said if you're prophesying which he said edifying and exhorting and, and and comforting one another he said you know what an unbeliever will do he said he will be convicted by all he will fall down and say surely God is in the midst of this people that's what we should pray for that when unbelievers come in and they go oh pretty good coffee and um, I, I saw a lot of Eagles jerseys. Yo, pound it out. That's good, right? So I feel comfortable there. But that people would say, as, the, as, as that guy was explaining the Bible, or that guy or that guy was explaining the Bible, as those people were singing those songs, it was as if the real and living God was in the midst of them, that he was dwelling among the people. So you say, well, that's great, Pastor, but how, how do I work this out? Because you said it, Pastor, the, the Jews are meeting on Friday, the Jewish Christians. And I didn't even go there yet. The, the Koreans are over there, and the Hispanics are over there, and the African Americans are over there, and we're all speaking the same language, and we just go, well, you know, it's just we're all more comfortable culturally. So a couple things to think about as we, as we look at this passage. Number one, gratitude is always fostered by remembering our past and remembering God's grace. Don't forget that. He says, don't you forget, you were dead in your sins, deserving wrath, but God made you alive by grace. Now he goes, here's some corporate gratitude. Remember that you were, especially most of us here Gentiles, you were excluded from God, but now you've been brought near. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that through the cross that I can come into the presence of God. I don't hit a wall and go, no Gentile. Number two, we should constantly rehearse the privileges that the gospel provides. Paul goes, 
you guys now have peace and access. My son-in-law was in a car accident this weekend. What a, everybody's fine, but it's a pretty serious accident. Thank you, God, that I can immediately pray. I have access to God. So then, wherever we are, we believers have peace with God. We have access to God. But third, the implications of this unity must be worked out. We cannot solve the national problem over politics and race, but we can work diligently to seek to solve the problem of politics and race within the church, the people of God. And so the Apostle Paul, who wrote this very same thing, he had to call out the Apostle Peter once. He said, Peter was not being right towards the Gentiles. I had to oppose him to his face because he was not walking straight forward according to the gospel. And so as we think this whole idea of reconciliation through, it takes time and prayer and patience and forgiveness and communication to strive to live a unified relationship. And as I said, Pastor Bob's going to preach on that passage where it's like, you need to be humble, you need to be forgiving, we need to be diligent. So two things in closing, the last two are this. If God's goal is reconciliation on a horizontal level, let's, let's do something novel like, how about if that starts in the family? You're like, oh, I love the Lord. My wife, oh, she's a pain, I can't get along with her. Oh, wait, what? Or my parents are such, I can't get along with my parents, they're losers. The very essence of the gospel is to bring harmony and unity among sinners. And the first seedbed for that is in family. Now, some of you are single. You get along splendidly with yourself. I find that too. That's why I laugh when couples get separated because they're fighting. They go, Pastor, you wouldn't believe it. Now that we're separated, we're getting along so much better. I go, that's so weird. Do you think there's any re reason why that might be? I get along splendidly with people I don't have to live with, right? That's not, that's not, that's not the solution. The solution is to say, in what way am I a cause of disharmony in my very family? If so, I'm not responsible for how they act, but I'm responsible for how I react. And if the gospel is about providing reconciliation and unity, what steps can I take to foster that? But lastly, while the goal of Christianity is not to cure political problems in nations, any nation that is favored with many Christians is fortunate in that the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people. And God tells Christians to pray for their nation and their leaders. And we've got a huge election coming up Tuesday. And Christians are not all in agreement over this. But we can be in agreement with this. We need to pray for our leaders and we can be agreement on this. The Bible says, pray that we may lead peaceable lives. Pray that God will put in office, he's sovereign, whatever party might be most peaceable for the propagation of the Christian gospel. Pray that we might be leading peaceable lives. And then he says, in godliness and dignity. The other big problem in America is not the pagans, 
As Tozer said, the problem with Christianity in America is Christians in America. There is far less godliness and dignity among the Christian community that needs to be in order for us to have an influence. So let's start right here at Riverstone and ask God that our church might be godly, loving, Christ-like people, and that the church in America will be revived to be godly, loving, Christ-like people, so that when the world is looking for some solution to both political and racial problems, we point them to the only solution. He himself is our peace. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that in Christ, he has created a new community. We're the people of God, and we're different, and we disagree, but through Christ, we are so blessed to have access to one father, one family, and we need each other. So please help us as a church to celebrate our new position. Please help us as a church to plead with lost people to come to Christ. Please add many more bricks to the building, even here in Bucks County and throughout the world. Please have mercy on our nation. We pray for righteousness among our leaders. We pray for you to protect Christians. And we pray that no matter what happens, that we will be bold and godly in the advancement of the gospel. And we thank you for what Jesus has done. And it is in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Be in prayer for the election. Have a great day.